0: Alright, so we did the high-rise hotel analogy, right? That was our our last thing, was the big crazy analogy with uh, all the stuff in it. And Like I said, uh, still imperfect, all analogies are, but it's good to kind of help us think about, okay, there might be people who can be saved from other faith backgrounds, you know, the Buddhist and the the Muslim, and maybe even, you know, the the, the good agnostic or atheist, they really, in their conscience, strove to find the answers and just simply it never worked. Maybe they, all they'd ever seen of religious people was people who were you know, uh, not living out that life. Maybe it was never explained well. Maybe they'd just been so hurt by something. You know, we don't know, right? And so, and then even, you know, you know the, the, the Jews, the Muslims, the Christians, the, uh, everybody from different groups, you know, have at least a chance. But nobody gets saved except for by Jesus' death and resurrection. But there might be other paths out. But is going to have the best path. And we would say the Catholics are the best uh, path, not because we're just better or something like that. More like because you've got both the the clear clarity of the word taught for two thousand years, the, the instructions given in the top floor of the of the hotel, but also the specific extra physical grasp that hand pulling you through through the sacraments, baptism, confession, communion, um, uh, last rites, all those things, helping you to find your way through the through the burning building and stuff like that. Um, Okay, so now we're on to the story of Japan, right? And this one, um, I'm just going to do a very brief little touch on that. Uh, It's kind of fast, because this is all under the idea of the church is Catholic. Um, The church, uh, you know, throughout its years has always been a missionary church, always going off to new lands. So it started in the Roman Empire, but even before the Roman Empire had fully accepted, they were already long past its borders, right? And there was times when, you know, people were always amazed at, like, you know, wait, you're going to have to convert the Goths? Guys like are like crazy barbarians like yeah And all the more reason why they probably need Jesus, right? So they went out. So the church has always been doing that. In the the 1500s, even at the very time that the Catholic church was facing massive, I say, yeah, 1500s, massive internal struggles with Reformation and and, uh, wars of religion, all that sort of, and would for 200 years after that, even in the midst of that, they were still sending out missionaries. You know, they didn't say, oh, take care of problems. Nope, we're still going out there. So you've got guys like St. Francis Xavier who go to Africa, I think he went to Madagascar, if I remember right, and then on to India, and then on to Japan, finally. And a lot of his work was in India, but he went on to Japan because, like, whoop, well, just keep moving east, just keep moving east. And these were like the superheroes of the 16th century, you know, incredible amounts. I mean, like, you know, they had basically these Jesuits—you just tape them, drop them in a the jungle, come back in 10 years, and find the people who had built a church and they're, you know, praising God and singing chants and stuff like that. You know, I mean, these guys could do. Private. Has anybody ever seen the movie The Mission? If you get a chance to look for it, it's about 1987, Robert De Niro, Jeremy Irons. I think it won. It won the Academy Award. It won the uh, the Palms, Dorf, the Golden Palms that the Cannes Film Festival does. Really cool story about um, uh, a Jesuit mission down in South America, and truly was the example like these guys could just be dropped anywhere. And some of them got killed, and those that didn't get killed converted whole continents. So uh, it's a cool it's a cool movie. Uh, Beautiful music and, and visual effects as well. Um, yeah, eighty six. I want to say. Uh, the, they got killed. Um, in some cases, it was that um, the people, the the natives, just didn't accept the new religion. It, you know, it was telling them, you know, nope, you can't have eight wives, or nope, you can't, you know, just kill your buddy in a vendetta, or nope, um, you know, uh, we just don't like the idea of you know getting rid of our. 25 gods or whatever. Sometimes they, as the missions grew, they were just seen as a potential threat to the power of like the local king or whatever. And really you find the same issues going on with missionaries, whether it was back in uh, the, you know, the seven or 800s trying to convert the, the Germans and the Scandinavians and the, and the Vikings. You know, Imagine getting that job. Hi, you're going to go convert the Vikings. You realize they come here and kill us, and I'm going to go there and try and, you know, work it out. But St. Olaf did. And he survived. Um, his buddies didn't, but he did. Um, uh, you know, so you got that, and then you find the same error. So Japan was one of the the places that they um, uh, reached in the in the 16th century and began to preach, and that's where uh, Francis Xavier, I'm pretty sure, died in Japan. But other missionaries continued to spread the gospel there, and eventually, Japan actually had a very fast growing Catholic Church in the in the mid uh, 1500s or late 1500s. And then things went south. You know, we, when we think of Japanese, you know, from that era, we think of, like, you know, the shoguns and the samurais and all that sort of stuff. But people don't realize that the shogun era was actually a very specific thing in response to um, Western influences. And the, the victory of, the, of the, the shoguns at that time was actually a rejection of all Western influence. It didn't exclusively cover religion, but that was one of the big things because so many people were converting so quickly. And so basically, the shogun um, movement was actually an intentional um, traditionalist, nativist reaction against. Western, Western civilization and Christianity and kicking them all out and locking down Japan for almost the next 300 years. Um, Japan only reopened to Western influence, Western trade, Western anything forcibly when actually the gunboats of uh, Admiral David Farragut of the United States Navy showed up in Japan and said, Hi, we have guns and we have stuff to trade. You can trade or we use the guns. Your choice. Thank you. Right. And this was fascinating. As the Europeans... Um, came back into, into, uh, into Japan in the, in the 1800s then, um, they were, uh, you know, in general, they were just seen as foreigners who were coming in and stuff. But every once in a while, they would run into somebody. And, this, and I forget when this first happened, but at one point when the, when the, um, the priests were getting off the boat and, and coming aground, they, uh, with maybe the French or something like that, they, they met people who came and said, I have a question. Are you a Catholic priest? And they're like, I am. And they said, We're Catholics here. We, you know, the the ten of us here, we're Christians. uh, And we actually have for 250 years been without the sacraments except for marriage and baptism. But we're all Catholics. And they knew their faith, and it had been handed on Era by era, generation by generation, by parents to their children to their grandchildren, without any real hope of ever seeing a priest, receiving the Eucharist, going to confession, um, anything else. When, when, they, when, they, when the Jesuits left and they were being driven out, many of them killed and a few of them driven out, they gave one and they said, We're going to be, this is going to end. You guys are going to have to go underground. We're going to be lost. And they basically gave them instructions of someday somebody might come back. And you asked them three questions. You asked them, um, because they knew that other Christian groups might come, and so they gave them three questions they could always ask. It's kind of like almost like a Lord of the Rings sort of thing, where you're waiting hundreds of years to like ask the right questions and find out if this person you've been waiting for is, you know, the the king come back to the mountain or whatever. And uh, and it was, um, are you in union with the Bishop of Rome? Do your priests get married? And do you revere Mary as Mother of God? And they figure with those three questions, any different? And think about it, you would never know in the next. 100 to 1,000 years... How many other Christian denominations there might be who might come to you next? But they said, with these three questions, we can safely bet you'll know how to pick out a Catholic priest. And the the I mean, that was crazy. Like, can you imagine raising your kids without ever knowing if they would ever make a first communion, if they would ever you know uh, have the chance to you know be confirmed and stuff like that? But they did, not pass it on. There's actually the the era is called the Meiji era. Look it up sometime. I think it's M E I J I, and it's all about the ways in which they would hide. Their Christianity in the other art, so there'll be will be like things that are, look like Shinto shrines, but you like open them up and there's clear symbolism of like uh, the church. Or there's I'm to, there's another image that's really actually a sneaky image of the Virgin Mary holding the baby Jesus, but it's hidden in Japanese art. So they became masters of um, uh, what's the word I want here. Um, I can't think, you know, but you know, of, of underground, other, underground Christian living and stuff like that. It was really cool. So it's a great example of the, the church. It explains both the, the awesome universality of that. I mean, the fact that you could literally show up 300 years later and they're like, we're like you. We just haven't had what you've had, you know, and and then it also leads into the church is holy. How is it being handed on? It was by families, you know. So, yes, we privilege having deacons and priests and bishops and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, the faith can be handed on even in in, um, circumstances of just having families doing it. So shout out to all you uh, parents for the job you do in raising your kids and giving them the Christian background. Because at the end of the day, we priests and bishops can only do so much. It's really going to come from families and stuff like that. All right. And there's cool stuff to find out on that. Like, like do some search on that. There's some awesome, awesome stories, both about them, the, the persecution as they were driven out and the great heroism there, but also um, going back in terms of uh, the things that they found that people had, had endured in the meantime. Finally, the church is holy. I'm going to be just very briefly um, in terms of uh, time. So Ephesians 5 is the one I point to. Uh, most people know Ephesians 5 as the nudge reading at Mass, right? It happens every three summers. The, you know, uh, wives, be submissive to your husbands. The Christ is the church. Hear that, honey? Be be submissive, honey. Where's my sandwich, honey? Right? To which then the next line, husbands, love your wives as Christ of the church, offering himself up for her. Did you hear that, honey? you supposed to die, honey. Die, honey. <laughs> right? You know, it's a great, it's a great moment. I mean, everyone loves that. Every priest loves to preach on that one. Um, but in there, in addition to the great discussion, and when we talk about marriage, I'll actually talk a little about that because I think actually St. Paul is wiser than people give him credit for in his discussion there, but you just have to understand what the words mean a little better. Um, but. Um, the, uh, the cool things we get out of Ephesians 5 and other places, and I think Ephesians 5 was my opening reading on this, I know it's been two weeks now. Uh, yeah, there it is, yeah. Um, but the emphasis of a bride of Christ, but also body of Christ. Those are the two great images that St. Paul pushes for the church, that she is bride of Christ and she is body of Christ. Ephesians 5 has a strong emphasis on bride, but notice the way in which the language of bride is couch. He is, she is his bride, but also she is then part of his body. I mean, with Jesus, Jesus is... You know, when we talk about the body of Christ, it's his body, but when we talk about him as him, we talk about him as the head of the body, right? And yet, how can that be? How can the body both be, how can the church be both bride and body? Well, look at what happens in marriage, the two become one flesh. This is going to be horribly misshapen, and wow, this guy needs to work out. Um, you know, it, it, the whole is Christ, both in the sense of that's him, but we also talk about times where... That's Christ, the head, and we, the people, are his body. How is this possible? Well, it has to do with what we understand about baptism. We'll talk more about that, actually, I think, next week, maybe two weeks from now. Um, But the idea of, you know, we're made part of him. In baptism, we die to sin and death and rise again, but then we are inserted into Christ's life. We are made children of the Father. We are made part of His body. We are incorporated—literally, the word—to be part of the body, incorporated into Him. And so we are bride in the sense that we are waiting for the groom. But once we, He weds Himself to His church, then we are actually part of His body, and so that we can, so that we can see Him as head. Head of us. Wow, that's just horrible writing. You can't make Christ out of that. What's that word? Um, but anyway, so so cool images there. And with that, when you look at St. Paul's then discussion then of bride, he refers to her as spotless bride, without stain or wrinkle, and that helps us understand the idea that church is holy. Now, in the same way that we have this you know interesting thing of you know Jesus is God and man, and the you know church is bride and body, you also have the the. Um, Paradox, we talked about paradoxes before, Jesus is God and man, Mary is virgin and mother, how does this happen, right? You have another paradox here of the church is a holy church, so under bride, holy church, but made up entirely of sinners. How does that work? Well, kind of, not quite the exact same way, but in many ways, the same paradox of, you know, Jesus is God and man. How can Jesus say the Father and I are one? but he can also say the Father is greater than I, same way that I can say that I am a sinful member of the spotless bride of Christ. Um, I think it's kind of cool. I don't have this really written down here, but I like, um, especially the new translation of it, um, the prayer we have after the Our Father, um, the, let me see, um, uh, deliver us from every, no, that, that's the one after that. Um, the kingdom, the power, and the glory is His now and forever. Lord Jesus Christ, who said to your apostles, peace I leave you, my peace I give you. Look not on our sins, but on the faith of the church. Which is a cool line, right? It's saying, don't pay attention to my sin, and her sin, and his sin, and their sins, and their sins, but look on the church as a whole. See the spirit, spotless bride rather than the spotted members. See that the, that the sun has died for us to make us whole, to make us clean, to make us part of his body, and to make us truly the spotless bride, right? And that's kind of a cool image then of how we're brought into that. Um, but when we see that, then we also actually incline to do more work. It's not that we're like, oh, well, I'm fine, I'm in the body, I'm part of the bride, I'm confident, I'm holy. No, it's when you see yourself in there that you bend to work more. You know, you say, um, I mean, this is why I will say Catholics are not always the best at preaching. Protestants do a way better job of preaching the idea that if we're the body, then we need to be doing that. Then we are his hands, we are his feet, we are his lips, we need to be, helping. We need to be going. We need to be speaking. And we need to be doing those sort of things if we're really going to call ourselves the body. So the bride might be the moment where you're like, okay, I'm taken care of. I'm spotless in Christ. But then the body is a reminder that we have stuff to do, stuff to get out there and stuff to, 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 to be about if we're going to be holy. All right. Um, Matthew, Kelly, and Scott and I just have two funny little lines that I like about the holiest. As we talked earlier, one of the great arguments for the Catholic Church uh, is actually her unholiness. Right? We said, you know, Leo the Great and Gregory the Great and John Paul II make a great argument for like papal infallibility. But really, they don't, because if they're all that good, then, well, well, of course the church works. The real beauty is guys like Vigilius, who are scumbags, and yet the church doesn't fall apart. You know, as we had Cardinal Consalvi saying to Napoleon the other day, you know, if the bishops and popes haven't destroyed the church yet, Napoleon, you won't. Um, but at the same time, we still affirm the holiness of it, but there's kind of a cool balance of saying the church is holy, but it's still made up of sinless, sinful members. Do you guys know who Matthew Kelly is? We oftentimes give out his books at Christmas time. I think we have another one lined up for this year. Uh, I got to see him in person in in, uh, Lincoln at the cathedral a couple years ago and he's like, man, sometimes the church is hard to be in. It's full of idiots. It's full of sinful people. It's full of crying kids and bad music and you know, crappy homilies and stuff like, man, it's hard. You know, you can make a nice list of all the things that aren't, you know, working in any given church, in any given parish, in a group of people. And it's like, just don't you just get rid of bad, the bad people? You know, if only there was some way to, like, ditch them, just, like, to send them away, somewhere from our churches, from our parishes, send them, send them away from our country, you know. If only, if only there was an island we could just drop them on, put one, all, the, all the bad people on one island, that would take care of things. The reason why this is funny when he does and I and not when I'm doing it is because Matthew Kelly, do you know why? Yeah. Because Matthew Kelly is from Australia. So the whole thing is in this uber-strong Australian accent. So he says, if only there was an island where we could send all the bad people. He's like, oh, wait... That's my island, right? Because Australia was founded by the British Empire wanting an island to dump all the prisoners on, you know, freeze up, you know, have to do that. Like, like eh, you can't get back to Europe, but, you know, you're somebody else's problem, right? So it's just crazy. And the accent, I think he, his accent almost gets thicker as he does it because he's, like, emphasizing for people, like, oh, yeah, that's right, we did try this once, it didn't work, and now it's a country, you know? Uh, so anyway, it's just kind of a fun line. but it, But it does remind us that We have this temptation to do that. And the Scott Hahn line, I don't don't remember where he said it. It might actually just be in a talk. But Scott Hahn once had the the famous joke about, you know, uh, the Catholic Church. Come on in. It's awful in here. Not only the church is awful, but it's made up of people who are sinful, right? And it says, like, in a sense, that's the great invitation. I should probably run the Scott Hahn quote, have the great quote by um, uh, Oscar Wilde. He guys know who Oscar Wilde is. Uh, uh, English author he wrote the picture of Dorian Gray and he's known for famous quips he's a great like one liner guy I think he might be the original source though some of these quotes you never really know he might be the original uh, source of uh, every saint has a past every sinner has a future but don't quote me on that I don't actually know I do know that he has a quote he, uh, he was obviously Anglican uh, being raised in the Church of England but he was basically kicked out of the Church of England not kicked out of it looked down upon because of his practicing homosexuality in an era when it wasn't accepted as as the whole world tends to today, it seems. Um, but he, in his deathbed, actually, um, entered the Catholic Church. He was reconciled to um, uh, the, the, the Catholic Church uh, on his deathbed. And and I wish I had the line here. It would be way better to have here. Uh, but it's something to the effect of um, the Catholic Church is made for great saints and great sinners. For anyone else, the Anglican communion will do. And, and I think that's kind of how he saw himself. He said he saw himself as A great sinner who wanted to be a great saint. He could never you know um, see himself as just the normal, respectable Englishman of of the Anglican church. He said, But the Catholic Church there is there to welcome me then. Uh, and so just kind of a cool image. All right, is that the last thing that ended of page six? Okay, good. All right. (coughs) So on to page on on to number nine. Death, judgment, heaven, hell, and purgatory. All right. I'm not gonna look at the review because we already, you know, did a nice chunk there. So why don't you jump onto page two? Um, to eschatology. The last four things. That's what we talk about. Death, judgment, heaven, hell are known collectively in Catholic thinking and other thinking as uh, eschatology. Uh, The eschaton, uh, it says eschaton in the Bible and tradition. Eschaton is just um, the Greek word for the end. All right. The end of any particular thing. Um, so we're talking about it For us it means the end of our, end of our lives then um, You have to be careful Because um, the word eschatology And scatology sound a lot alike So scatological humor Is humor having to do with bathroom things Scatize poop in Greek So you know um, Children like to make scatological jokes pastors like to make eschatological jokes. And you got to make sure that you don't let your scatological and eschatological words get mixed up there. You know? So you got to make a distinction you know, of like, you know, you know, we appreciate Father's scatological humor. Like, scatological eschatological? Like, what's the difference? Well, one has to do with the end of the world, the other just has to do with your own end. Right? You know. Um, not, see you right there, you get both. I'm not even going to take that home. What's <laughs>
1: that? I said I'm not even going to
0: take Yeah, that home. I wouldn't. <laughs> All right. So, eschatology, heaven, hell, uh, ju- well, I'm sorry, death, judgment, heaven, and hell death, judgment, heaven, and hell so first of all, death What's us definition, right? I think I know what death is, sure you do but we need a nice official theological definition other than be class, right so death is simply the separation of the body and the soul people ask how could Jesus die if he's God well, of course he can God didn't die, no matter what Nietzsche said no, but, um, but what it means is his body and soul could be separated. Certainly, Jesus' body and soul could be separated, just as ours can, right? His Godhead, his divinity still remains attached to both his soul and even to his body, but a body with divinity attached without a soul, then it doesn't do a whole lot of good, right? You know, so so that, that's a weird image right there to picture that that split. Don't worry, no one else has ever really thought about it, so uh, I mean, like, in, no, no one ever had to see it, so we didn't have to wonder what's like, no one, like, poked his body and was like, is God still in there? Didn't think of it that way. Alright, um, separation of soul and Body. It's a philosophical definition, what's going on there. Alright? Um, why death? I'm gonna move pretty quickly through these because a lot of these are pretty obvious. Why death? As we talked before, if nothing else, we can say from scripture that death is the punishment for original sin. It might be a whole lot of other things too, but at the most basic level, death is a punishment for sin. Here's another thing to think about. In some way, while it's a punishment, it also might have simply made sense. If man and woman figure out how to hurt each other and how to break from God, and remember we had our little guy who, like, who was in union up to God, over to his wife, in union with himself, and then down to the earth? Once you break that, you probably don't want to live forever, right? It would actually make sense. So the reason why uh, oftentimes you talk about the, the, the intellect being darkened in original sin. Imagine, life is good when you're really smart and really talented and really powerful if you're good. But as we've all learned from comic books, when the, when the mastermind turns criminal, things go really bad in a hurry, right? You know, so you have like Dr. Octopus and stuff like that, right? You know, so in some sense, it made sense that God dimmed their intellect so they couldn't do nearly as much damage. I mean, like, we finally got to the point after how many thousands of years we could still blow up the earth again. But Adam and Eve could have blown up the earth on day one, in theory, if the idea of intellect darkening is, is an accurate idea. That once upon they had all the knowledge and then they lost it, or they got darkened. In the same way death kind of makes sense. Has anybody ever read anything or heard of anything from Lord uh, J.R.R. Tolkien before Lord of the Rings? Like, everybody knows Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, right? But he has a whole bigger world um, of, like, of uh, middle-earth mythology. It's, and the, the book called The Silmarillion is kind of the encapsulates. Anybody even heard of that, Silmarillion? It's, it's sort of uber nerds. like, uh, people always describe it, reading it, it feels like reading the entire New Testament. And it does, because it's so many names, they're like crazy elves and stuff like that. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big old read, and, and uh, yeah. Have you read it? uh uh-huh. Yeah, because I'm a nerd. Um, and I enjoyed it. But you got to, I mean, I read it for the first time after having read Lord of the Rings like five times over like 15 years. I only tackled it once. I really felt, you know, it's like, oh, so-and-so uses that name and you just thought it was a name. You didn't realize that 20 years previous, Tolkien had written a song about that person long before he ever dreamed that there was a ring that had to be destroyed in a volcano. Because Lord of the Rings is actually his really late production. As a kid, he'd already developed this mythology, and then he would kind of dip into it to write his kids' stories, and then somebody got him to write The Hobbit. And they're like, you got to write another story The Hobbit. He's like, I want to tell my giant long story of the creation of Earth with the elves. And they're like, nobody wants that. And he's like, okay, fine, I'll write Lord of the Rings. Right. So it's kind of funny. Lord of the Rings is the book he wrote to make money because he didn't get a chance to write the book he wanted to write and it's the most popular book of the last 100 years not bad for your off work right yeah. you know and then people got so nerdy they wanted to read his old stuff and they did um but anyway the reason i bring that up is in the lord of the rings we think of elves and men because we think of it as like we do in our world where like elves are like short and pointy and stuff like that and men are us right but in tolkien they're basically the same general race but there's a split at the beginning of time roughly not quite true but just go with me for a second and the difference is elves don't die And it's funny, in the beginning, when they meet humans, they talk about the fact that humans dying as the gift of the gods. And it's only later on that when the humans begin to be annoyed by the fact that they die and the elves keep living, that they begin to call death the curse of the gods, or maybe it's the curse of men, or uh, from the gods, something like that. I forget the actual details. But um, but the thing about why would they first? Why would the elves call death a gift? Well, imagine you're in a world where there's death and pain and sorrow and loss and everything else going bad around you, and orcs, goblins, right? You wouldn't want to live forever. It would be an incredibly hard place. So that's actually why, in the beginning, the gods, if you will, of Middle Earth take the elves to kind of a a worldly paradise and keep them over there because if you're going to live forever, you need to have a good life. It's only when they are dumb and go back, that's kind of their original sin, they go back to Middle Earth, and then they're like, well, you kind of earned the pain and melancholy you have because you didn't do that. Meanwhile, the humans, they live only in that world, but they can die and escape from it. So it's really kind of a depressing book at times, I'm going to tell you that. Um, But it's kind of beautiful, too. All right, that was, like, Father, why was a full solid minutes, uh, five solid minutes of the thing actually on Tolkien? Like, well, I don't know. What happens to the body and soul, right? We know what happens to the body, right? Bodies decay, they're made up of carbon, they return to the earth, etc., etc. What happens to the soul? Um, the soul is separated from, but we believe as Catholics and as Christians that that is not eternal, that we are not permanently separated. We, you know, we say right there in the Creed, I believe in the resurrection of the body. And that's not just for the good ones, right? You know, it's, first of all, it's not just a resurrection in the sense like, you know, uh, I'm going to go to heaven. No, that's a resurrection of your soul. We're longing for a resurrection of the body, right? Because body and soul are meant to go together. They're a natural pair. In, in, death is, is very unnatural. It splits us off. And in some way, even your soul in heaven, while it might be at rest, is still, <coughs> still in an unnatural state until its return. At the same time, we believe that those who are in eternal suffering in hell will have their bodies back too, which would only make it crappier. You're like, man, hell sucked when I was just a soul. I got a body now? Well, great. This will make this worse, right? So another good reason to shoot for heaven, right? Um, below, I have a quote from the thing that I read today in the gospel. Um, and it's a reason why uh, not only helps us understand what goes on at death, but it also helps us understand prayers to the dead. Jesus said to the Pharisees, uh, Sadducees, that the dead will rise even Moses made known in the passage about the bush when he called Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. And that's an important thing for us. to realize. We tend to think, well, they're dead, therefore they're cut off. He's like, no. The dead are more alive than we are. C.S. Lewis is really good on that. The idea that, that earth is the shadowlands, heaven is the reality. Where God is is the real world. We're living through something else that's like it. That's a shadow of it. The Hebrews talks about, the book of Hebrews talks about that a lot, you know, but the idea of like, when I die, I go to my true homeland, right? Not, Nebraska, that's my true home. Heaven is my home. This is kind of my exile. And you see that in a lot of Christian authors and stuff like that. But the idea that they're not only not dead, but they are actually more ahead of us is a cool thing to think about. But it also helps us understand why we can even talk about, like, prayers to the dead, right? Uh, oftentimes, people say, you know, people are like, well, sh- can we pray for the dead? And the classic Catholic apologetic answer is, you pray for me while I'm living, right? You know, I can... Um, you know, I could be, uh, you know, worried about like, i got to go in for um, a test or something. I'm like, Neil, can you say a prayer for me? It's like, sure, right? So Neil says a prayer for me, and, you know, and gets his kids to pray too, and that's probably really cute, you know, uh, and all that sort of stuff. He can do it while I'm living. Why, if I die, could he not pray for me, right? And people say, well, you're dead. Well, I'm dead, but Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke that I'm actually alive, maybe even more alive after I leave this earth. So the idea that I'm simply dead doesn't seem to be a particularly, you know, strong argument, okay? Um, do you guys have... Oh, I misread that. <laughs> one says prayers to the dead, one says prayers for the dead. Do this. Scribble out, scribble out the two and the four and switch them, um, if you already wrote an answer. The reason um, <laughs> prayers for the dead work uh, is because they're, they're still alive. But also, on the second one, put in prayers to the dead oftentimes people will be like, well, why can, again, the flip side of that argument is also like, why would you pray to the saints? And we're like, well, because in the same way that I can ask Neil to pray for me here on earth, I should be able to ask uh, my uh, patron saint, St. Joseph, I should be able to say he can pray for me. Like, well, but your patron saint died. Joseph died 2,000 years ago. True. But is he not more alive in God than even I am, right? He is with God for all eternity. So why can I only talk to, I mean, I can talk to Neil here on earth. I can call Neil on the phone. If Neo was in a different country, I could call him as well, right? If people are still alive in God, why can I not pray to them by the same means that I do I pray to God, that I, that I turn to heaven and say, you know, St. Joseph, you know, hear my prayer, et cetera, et cetera. We can debate whether or not you ought to ask them, but that's just the classic argument in, in terms of, um, you know, why is it that I can uh, ask somebody who's dead to pray for me? Make sense? Sorry about the messed up writing there. Okay. Thinking about death. The thing I want to notice is we don't do it enough, Right? Think about death. We don't think about death nearly enough as we probably should. Do I want you to all be morbid? Do I want you to be goths? Do I want you to sit around and think about death all the time and write melancholic poetry and, you know, be one of those people? No. No, I don't want you to do that. But you, I think we can acknowledge that for the last 50 to 100 years, especially Americans, and especially modern Americans, we have moved as far away from death as we possibly can. We don't have to think about it. We don't like to talk about it. We like our slasher movies, but that's on the screen. We'll keep it over there, right? You know, think about it. Once upon a time, Grandma got sick. You took her to your house. She stayed in your bed in your house. When she died, you washed the body. You dressed her. You put her downstairs in your front parlor. You held the wake where people came into your house where you talked and told stories about her. And then the next day or so, you took her body to the church carried by your family, and then you carried her down the street and put her into the ground while your family scooped dirt over top of her. We do almost none of that anymore. Grandma gets old, Grandma's sick, she goes to the nursing home, right? She dies, you know, we go home after we've said our final goodbyes, the funeral home picks her up, takes her away, they clean her, they... Dresser. It's in their parlor that she's that she's presented. People come there. They take her to the church. They take her to the cemetery, etc. And I realize we're not a little village in Ireland anymore. I get that, right? You know, so I'm I'm just certainly happy with motor travel. Um, but there's a sense in which every step of the way we have disconnected ourselves from death, and we don't like to think about it. I remember uh, reading a friend of mine from high school his um, his Facebook post. He admitted that he had not gone to see his grandma uh, in the you know a couple of weeks leading up to her death, maybe even months, and I felt bad because he kind of made a feeble excuse. He's like, it was just hard, and I admit I should have gone, but I didn't want to, and maybe it's better this way that I only, have, I only saw her in when she was healthy, um, and I didn't have to see her fade away. I'm like, you know what, man? That's sad. That's you protecting yourself, but that's not taking care of her. Right? There's a reason why I visit the, the sick is a corporate work of mercy, because if you don't want to see her sick, how bad do you think she wants to see herself sick? How bad does she want to deal with the fact that, you know, she has to have somebody move her to the toilet. You know, that somebody has to, like, sponge bathe her and stuff like that. You know, there's a point where we have to be honest with ourselves, and be like, no, no matter how uncomfortable I am, I need to do that. But all that goes to our modern America thing of distancing from death, right? Keep that, keep that at a difference. And I think because of that, we've also stopped praying about our death. Notice every Hail Mary says, pray for us now at the hour of our death, amen, right? And we have any number of prayers. Now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Um, but they come from a different era, an era that, like I said, has kind of been pushed aside and there are relics of that once upon a time everybody at least every Catholic I don't know if uh, other denominations too you had your little like personal prayer book and you would have in there uh, like the Catholic prayer book would probably have some prayers for mass and stuff like that but it would also have a lot of your devotional prayers kind of some favorite saints uh, how to pray the rosary how to do the station of the cross how to make a good confession and there was always in every one of those no matter how big or small always a prayer for a happy death and if you think about it that made a lot more sense in a, in a different era right nowadays we think to ourselves okay I might get in a car wreck the paramedics are going to come. They'll take me to the hospital. I might not survive, but I'm going to be, somebody's going to rescue me. Somebody's going to take me to the hospital. They're going to give me um, a uh, painkiller, and I'm going to die under a lot of protection and watching out for. But in 1800, I might just get gored by an ox in the middle of my field and die out there. You know, um, if I get cancer, it's going to be a slow, painful death or a quick, painful death. Either way, you know, it's going to be rough. You know, um, I live in fear, you know, that I'm going to have um, a stroke and no one's going to find me for, for days on end because I don't, you know, have somebody who's like, you know, whoa, you know, didn't get a text from mom this morning, right? You know, so they had a lot more real reason to realize there's a lot of crappy ways to die, you know, and that the idea of praying for a happy death was really a beautiful thing saying, I realize I'm going to die, I do not know when I'm going to die, and I pray that not only is it physically happy, I know that sounds bad, but like that it could be the best situation, but also that it's spiritually happy, that even if I am suffering, you know, from a, a, a tumor or something like that, as I die, at the very least, I'm saying, God, give me the strength and the courage to not despair and to not freak out and to, and to make it, you know, through this. So I mean, you have people who prayed, they might not have said any other prayers, but man, they always said their prayer for a happy death. And and I, And I can't... I don't think I, I mean, that's not true. Night Prayer of the Catholic Church has built into it Prayers for a Happy Death, but I don't have a personal devotion of a book I read that has a prayer for a happy death in it. I don't know that many people do, but I think it's, I think it's because of the thing above, we don't think about it. I think our world has changed on that one. Okay, death. All right, judgment. All right. Here we're the particular one. All right. We will see. We will see God face to face. That's one of the things that we hear. We hear it from the book of Job originally in the Old Testament, and we hear it repeated in the book of Revelation that we will see God face to face. And when we see God face to face, we're also told that we will see ourselves as we really are. That we will see the reality of ourselves. We will see our strengths and our weakness, our sins and our, and our merits. We will see all of that at once. We will see us as God sees us. And then it says, "And judge." There's a pretty strong Christian tradition of the idea that God is not so much going to judge me as I'm going to judge myself. That when I see who God is and I see who I, who I am, I'll be the one doing the judging, right? And you're like, oh, well, then in that case, you're going to be just damning yourself because who in the sight of God could do anything else? Yeah, maybe. But if I truly see myself how God sees me, I will also see his death on the cross. I'll also see His merits. I'll also see the things that He has done for me, the graces He's done. So I'll see accurately, you know, that He's like, no, I gave you grace and you cooperated with it. I gave you the chance to believe and you believed fully. I gave you the chance to love and, and serve and, and be true and you did those sort of things. But it sounds like, again, it's, it's not necessarily in the Bible, but it's a strong Christian tradition that in some way or another we'll be judging ourselves because we'll see things as completely, perfectly honest as they are. It will be true humility, whether we are saying, Lord, I have really screwed up, or if I say, Lord, I've screwed up, but you have rescued me, either way it will be true humility, all right? Um, We do not know about God's judgment, right? And this is a, is a key thing that we, have to, that we, I think if there's one thing our era does a good job, it's on this one, to say we don't know what God is going to judge on somebody, right? You know, we always say I can't judge because God doesn't judge, right? Or I, I, or I can't judge, only God can judge, maybe it's more likely to be said, though sometimes people say even God can't judge them, which is weird. Um, you know, but it's a, we don't know his, his judgment, or we don't know that final judgment. And that's true, you know? Somebody might be um, abusive, somebody might be violent, somebody might be an alcoholic, somebody might be... Uh, an atheist, somebody might be whatever, you know, but we don't know God's judgment, at, at the end of the day um, there's stuff that we don't know, and like I said, with the, the building, we don't know who gets out of the building, there might be people who get out of the building that surprises, and there might be people who don't get out of the building that surprises, right, That that analogy there. Which brings us to uh, this great line. This is a great line that we we hear in the Eucharistic prayer. And all those whose faith is known to you alone. I think it's from Eucharistic prayer four. Um, I think it's a slightly different translation now. But um, that's what it was at least in 2010. Um, It's a cool line. All those whose faith is known to you alone. So the person, as we talked about earlier, who maybe doesn't seem like they know God. But maybe they do. But they don't know how to go through a church to do that. Um, we'll talk more about that here, here in a second. Um, but, or, or the idea of, you know, a person who seems to have fallen away from Christianity, but God, it can still work in their heart. You know, all those faith whose, whose faith is known to you alone. So but we have hope. This is the key that we have to drive home. You know, when people are like, well, what about so-and-so? What about the people who, um, shot up San Bernardino? Right. Are they in hell? Is Hitler in hell? I don't know. I have hope that none of them are. I have hope that hell is empty. I do not know that. I don't claim that. Some people do, but I don't. Um, you know, we hope that that is not the case. Um, and so we can have hope for individual sinners as well, meaning we're all sinners, right? Um, this quote, I believe it's from St. Augustine, but don't quote me. There's a lot of things apply to St. Augustine that aren't his. Um, but the great line, there's much time between the bridge and the water. It's a good one. you think about a suicide. When you hear about a suicide and you think, but suicide must drive you to hell because killing is a sin. You're knowingly willingly killing yourself, and because you're choosing it, there's no chance of repentance, therefore you're going to hell. This is why this is kind of the traditional middle ages uh, conversation It's why if you remember from Hamlet there's a great debate over whether or not they'll bury Ophelia in blessed ground or unblessed ground and his brother her brother gets upset and Hamlet jumps in and there's a big fight uh, anyway Hamlet good hustle, good stuff um, in but that's the description luckily as as our knowledge of psychology and mental health has gone along. We recognize there's a whole lot of other things in there that a person who's killing themselves might not be sane. And if they're sane, they still might not be in a state of mind to make a full moral choice, full knowledge and full will. Um, And then even with that, St. Augustine's line, if it is Augustine, comes in that even if they made the full choice in that moment, there's a lot of time between the bridge and the water, meaning you jump off the bridge and in that half second you might be like, this is wrong, this is stupid, Jesus, I'm sorry, right? You're know, you like, well, what if you just been quicker? I don't know. I don't know when the second is the, the soul leaves the body after a person puts a bullet through their brain, but I think that there's, there's room. I, I don't need a lot of time for, have, for God to be able to work with that, right? So there's never a time where we have to say so-and-so is definitely dead. would be suicide, it would be a, a notorious sinner who dies suddenly. Uh, I had a friend whose uh, brother was living a very immoral life, and they, they really were, were torn up. And unfortunately, the priest at their parish gave a very warm and fuzzy homily, and that was not what the family needed. The family needed to acknowledge, this is scary. He lived a pretty messed up life, and he died very suddenly. That's a scary thought, but we have hope. Follow down the path of pain, and then point back to hope. Don't just be like, ah, God is good. He'll take care of it. Don't do that. People, that. That's not good for people's hearts. They need to be honest about the, what they're scared about. All right. The key in all of it, and we'll talk more about this in the, the stuff in the sacraments, is we need the sacraments. But God doesn't. You know, hear me say that again and again and again. We're like, well, how can, how can the atheist or the Muslim or the, the Buddhist, how can a Hindu with 10,000 gods go to heaven? We need the sacraments. God doesn't. So if he chooses to save you, I mean, think about it. What do we say about the, the, um, the uh, good thief on the cross? We would say that he needs to be baptized. But Jesus says, you'll be with me today in paradise. Does that mean that baptism is not important? This is actually a good fun debate between like um, some kind of once saved, always saved evangelical thoughts and more traditional Protestant thought like uh, Lutherans and and Presbyterians were to say, no, baptism matters. And it was like, it clearly doesn't because the good thief could be saved. We'd be like, we need the sacraments. God gave us the sacraments. Unless you're born of water and the Holy Spirit, you can't have eternal life. But that's for us. He can do what he wants. Right? God can, God can do his own thing on that. I think I've referenced it before, I'll probably mention it again, the uh, Missouri, Missouri Synod Lutheran Church has a great uh, thing on baptism. If you ever get a chance to look at it, I'll, I think I'll talk about it in baptism too. Great, awesome reflection on how baptism works. All right? Um, there is no canonized list of sinners. Uh, I like this one. There is a canonized list of saints, but there is no canonized list of sinners. In other words, we know who's in heaven. We know Joseph, John the Baptist, Peter. We know... Uh, Margaret Mary Alacoque, and we know Padre Pio, they are canonized, there's a canonized list, they must be in heaven. But there is no canonized, including Judas. We do not know for certain. People say, wait, Jesus says it's better for that man to never be born, so it means he must be in hell. Ah, but Jesus could be referring to the state of his soul at that moment when he had chosen to betray Jesus. Again, there's a lot of time between the noose and the snap, right? Could, it could be possible. Not saying it is. Could be possible, right? Um, about that canonized list of saints, right? That is what the, when we say canonized, we're saying the church steps in and says this person we know for certain is in heaven. We know for certain that this person uh, is in heaven. But that also means there can be millions more that we don't know for certain, but who are right. Your great grandma, who was very sweet, and you heard all sorts of things about. You. She was very holy. She was a prayerful woman, a good woman. Um, a faithful woman, you know, and she could very well be a saint and be a saint in heaven if she's in heaven, she's a saint, small s saint. What makes somebody a capital S saint is when the church canonizes and says, we know for certain that she is. All right. On to number three, which we will definitely not finish today. All right. What and where is heaven? Good question. Um, Book of Revelation talks about heaven. Other parts of the Bible talk about heaven. Um... The one thing we can be certain of what heaven is and where is heaven, it's where Jesus is. Wherever Jesus is, there's heaven. Is it a fluffy cloud land that we picture as kids? Maybe. Is it a place of uh, absolute happiness? Almost certainly. Is it um, what we heard today described in the book of Revelation when Neil read it? Um, Where it's, you know, a city? Possibly. But whatever it is, we know it's where Jesus is. Today you'll be with me in paradise, he says to the good thief. Right? So, that's the thing we can be certain of. Wherever, wherever Jesus is, there's heaven. Which might not be aware at all, right? I mean, if you don't have a body, I mean, first of all, where would you put heaven? If it's a place the way we think of normal places, is it in this universe? That seems weird. Is it beyond this universe? Okay, what's that mean? I can't even picture what beyond this universe means. Um, I'm just going with wherever Jesus is, right? It seems the, the place to be, to be most certain. What will it be like? Well, we can be certain of a couple of things. <laughs> There will be no sadness, there will be no sin, we will be with God, we will be happy. Beyond that, you can't make a lot of hard and fast conclusions, right? Because, right there, 1 Corinthians 2.9, but as it is written, what eye has not seen, ear has not heard, and what has not entered the human heart, what God has prepared for those who love him. There's other translations, Sometimes you hear, um, nor has it even dawned upon man, um, something like that, instead of, uh, has entered the human heart, but the idea is that what God has prepared for us, what we shall be, we can't even fathom. Our eyes haven't seen, our ears haven't heard, it, our hearts haven't even begun to ponder it, it's so far beyond us. Um, in a similar, so that's Paul there, uh, John in his letter talks about, you know, we are children now, what will we be, and he says, we don't know we will be, but we know we'll be with God, um. Uh, so the constant kind of thing is we don't really know what that looks like, um, but we get questions anyway. Kids love questions about this. Will my dog be there? Always a great question. There are two official Catholic answers, and they don't disagree, but they don't agree perfectly. The traditional one that you tend to be, is like, no, dogs don't have souls. Only souls go to heaven. Shut up. Your dog's dead, you know, which is very effective for talking to your children, no, it's not the real answer. I mean, it's not the real answer, but it's not, it's not actually very often given, but it's the conversation that when you're sitting around in an only adult conversation and you're having a theological debate about souls and stuff like that, then you can't. The answer you usually give to a, uh, a second grader is not, no, your dog is just a material being. He's dead now. He doesn't have a soul to go on. Instead, what I always say and plenty of other people say, and I think it's actually closer to the truth, is whatever you need to be happy in heaven will be there. If you need Fido to be happy in heaven, he'll have to be there because we know there's no sadness in heaven, right? So if you need to be there. Now, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I think seeing God face to face and being with all the saints and angels will probably be enough that you don't need Fido, but I don't know that. And maybe God decides, you know, maybe we could use some animals up here. If it'll make heaven happier, we could do that. I don't know if it's going to work that way, but at the very least, I can feel certain that whatever I need to be happy in heaven will be there. Right? So if I need, you know... If those poor people who keep on hassling me with Candy Crush invitations need Candy Crush to be happy, happy in heaven, I'm sure it'll be there. I don't think it will. I think they're actually violently unhappy. and That's why they play the game. But anyway. Um, this is the real one. The dog question is one you're like, eh, God can do what he wants. If he wants animals, okay. The difference is God owes a soul, a human soul, a landing place. He doesn't owe the dog a landing place. So if you choose to put dogs there, he can. But when he made you, he owed you an eternity. Maybe in hell, maybe in heaven, but he owes you something, right? That's part of the deal. With a dog, he doesn't, okay? Can I be happy if my loved one is not here? Now, that literally might be the hardest question. and I'm not sure that I have an adequate answer. I will give you what I often tell students. But I don't really know if it adequately answers it. Can I be happy in heaven if my loved ones aren't there? And I don't just mean still on earth. Like, if I find out that my sister, God forbid, went to hell. Actually, I'll probably be in hell. She'll be in heaven. Uh, But, no, hopefully not. Um, But I might be, I'll I'll spend longer in purgatory. That would be a better way to phrase it. I think she'll get to heaven quicker than I have. I'll have more time in purgatory. Um, But she, could she be happy if, or could I be happy if, if she wasn't there? How does that work? Because I can't imagine being happy when a friend of mine or a a spouse or whoever is suffering, but I'm told that heaven is perfectly happy. So will God have to force everybody into heaven just to make the rest of us happy? Usually the answer comes in the form of like, we'll understand that a person chose to not be in heaven and that they chose to be separated from God for eternity and that therefore in some way we'll at least take consolation the fact that knowing that God did not force them there against their will. I'm not sure that perfectly answers the hurt in my heart, but at least it makes sense. Like, okay, I'm not going to drag you kicking and screaming into heaven if you don't want to go there. And then I could take a certain rise. And if anybody has ever had to work with a family member who has... um, I don't know how to say it. I, I was supposed to say irredeemable bad mistakes, but of course there are no irredeemable bad mistakes. But like people who are, you try and work with somebody who has a serious drug problem where you can no longer rescue them. You have to do the tough love thing. You have to say no. You have to be like, I'm sorry, I can't rescue you out of another... in debt. I can't save you from another, you know, whatever. I just, I have to let you go. I don't know if anyone's ever had that in their life, but if you've ever had that, you can kind of begin to understand that even though you're not happy, there's a certain freedom in saying, I have to respect the fact that you don't want to even go to get help. I'll pay for you getting help, but you don't want that. I can't make you. That might be the closest we might be able to get on earth to be able to picture what that might look like. Um, And also, I think there's a sense which you can recognize that, you know, God God respects a person's freedom so much that he will not make the rest of the people in heaven miserable by the, the person in hell choosing to not want to be with God, right? He, the, the phrase that, I don't know who used it first, did he, that God will not hold the universe, let the universe be held hostage by one person who doesn't want to love, if that makes sense. So, I don't know. That's about as close as I can get to an answer. All right. Heaven and time. We talked about this a little bit. Um, I think at another time... Speaking of time, we're going have about two minutes left, right? I'm going to finish off Heaven and Time and Heaven and Sex, and then uh, we'll, we'll leave it there. Because I can't leave you suspended on that one, of all things, right? You know, how's it going to work? All right. Um, usually we talk about, you know, God being outside of time. And there's some cool things by C.S. Lewis on that. Really, though, uh, rather than just saying, like, you know, here I am today, here's my future, here's my past, it's still hard to figure out how that works, especially the idea of, like, how does God know you know, what I'm going to do tomorrow. The best way, part of thinking of it is, and we talk about this a little bit with God being outside of time, is to picture time more as around God. Remember when we talked talking about him being the eternal now? That's kind of a bad drawing. So, dinosaurs, Egyptians, Jesus, Middle Ages, Declaration of independence, me, 10,000 years from now, whatever, all going around i around God. So, like, he, he could see here. He could see here. He can see here. They're all equal. Just over here. It still looks like God is in time with me, and he's still having to look ahead or behind. This more shows that all of them are equal with him. Heaven would seem to be, then, a sharing in that. If we're with God, we're in his time or really lack of time. That doesn't mean we can't be aware of changes in the world, but people have speculated, like, will there be waiting? Like, you might get to heaven... You know, but we really feel like you're waiting long for family members. If you're outside of time, would you feel it? You might get there first, but by the time you looked around and noticed that that person was there, they're already there. You know, it's an interesting thought. I I can't give a lot of stuff to that. Heaven and sex. Lewis answers this, and I wish I had the quote word for word, but he compares it. It's great. Uh, He says, we think, how could there be fun or happiness in heaven without sex. Sex is one of the best things on the planet. How can we imagine that heaven would be devoid of that, right? Because there's no marriage in heaven and stuff like that. We're told these sort of things by Jesus to the Sadducees right here today. And the thing that Lewis says is, imagine talking to a four-year-old about sex. And you're like, <laughs> we've already had to avoid that conversation a couple times, right? And you're like, not now. I'll explain later, right? Um, but imagine, like, this kid, so maybe they learn something. Maybe they walk in on you. Maybe they read something in a book, whatever, right? And you're trying to explain something about it. You explain, that, you know, it's, you know, uh, very enjoyable, it's how adults bond with each other, blah, 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 that kind of thing, and the kid, and Lewis is kind of referring to that, and he says, what if the kid says, is it as fun as hopscotch, and you're like, oh, it's at least as fun as hopscotch, and he's like, can you do hopscotch while you're doing it, no, you can't really do hopscotch while you're doing it. Well, then how can it be fun? Because he can't have anything more fun than hopscotch. So the idea that you could have sex and not have a hopscotch in there, and yet it's more fun, is like, that doesn't make any sense because there's nothing more fun than playing hopscotch, right? You know, in the same way that we're like, can you have sex in heaven? No, it doesn't work. They're like, well, how can you have sex in heaven? It's kind of like the kids say, can you have, have a hopscotch and sex at the same time? So it's a great analogy. It's just, it's just a great one. You share with your adult friends over a drink or something like that. You know, there's just nothing better than asking, like, well, can you do a hopscotch and sex at the time? Like, not normally. Maybe. No, no, no. <laughs> so anyway, could, couldn't leave you hanging on that one, right? So when we come back next time, we'll talk about purgatory and hell and those sort of things. All right. Uh, all right, very good.